This episode of Standard Orbit is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program for the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. Want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. My name is Nicholas Meyer, director of Star Trek 2 and 6, and you are listening to Standard Orbit on Trek FM. Risk is our business. It's like nothing we've dealt with before. By golly, Jim, I'm beginning to think I can cure a rainy day. I can't change the laws of physics. Now in standard orbit, sir. Welcome, everyone, to Standard Orbit, Trek FM's dedicated podcast to the original and new cast of Captain Kirk and the Enterprise. I am Zach Moore, and last month I had the privilege, the great experience to go to Serling Fest 2019, which celebrated 60 years of the Twilight Zone, and met many fellow Twilight Zone fans there, but a lot of Star Trek fans as well, and and one of the many people that made my acquaintance there was Mr. Arlen Schumer, who is a author, creator, an all-around awesome guy, and I'm happy to have him as my guest this week on Standard Orbit. What's up, Arlen? Hey, Zach. Thanks for having me, man. I'm so happy to be here. So, so Arlette, uh, obviously, you're a huge Twilight Zone fan. That's why you were at Serling Fest. You were a published author in the Twilight Zone field. I'm the son Rod Serling never had. <laughs> that's right. That's right. You're a, the metaphorical son of Rod Serling. One of many. One of many. You're also a big Star Trek fan. Put it this way. I don't know if I would call myself a big Star Trek fan. I love the show. I kind of grew up with it. Respect it. But in terms of a fan denotes that you know a lot of the trivia and a lot of... I'm not as much of a fan of Star Trek, but I love the show and I watch it. So I guess technically I'm a fan, but not in the same way that I guess I've become a kind of expert slash scholar slash whatever you want to call it on my other pop culture loves like The Twilight Zone mm-hmm. and comic book history and Bruce Springsteen and the things that I'm into. Mm-hmm. But... I totally love Star Trek. I think the you know original generate whatever you call it the original is still the best. Um, you know it's the trilogy. It's the triad of Kirk, Spock, McCoy that's never been duplicated. And from a visual standpoint, I love the look of the original Star Trek. The pastel colors, um, the way they frame things and lit things. One of my future art projects might be doing a kind of a visual homage to Star Trek by purely capturing some of those full color images like I've done for Twilight Zone, which was done in black and white. I've treated the Twilight Zone photography like black and white art photography. I've always thought about if I were ever to do a Star Trek project, it would be doing a visual homage, which hasn't really been done before. 
Mm-hmm. Now, speaking of that, why don't you tell some of the listeners about your Twilight Zone book so they know what it is and what you know what kind of work you do visually with you know these properties? Yes, yeah. um, I'm sure everybody listening to this that's in the Twilight Zone has Mark Zickery's great episode guide, The Twilight Zone Companion, which was really the first book about the Twilight Zone. Previous to his book coming out in 1982, the only other book about a TV show was the making of Star Trek. Zikri's book is the second book about television. When you go into a bookstore now, there's a whole section devoted to television. Right. But back in 1980, you know, 80, 81, there was only one book and Zikri's book is second. Well, when I found out Zikri's book was getting published, I must have read it somewhere in the fan press, you know, as a comic book fan, mm-hmm. you know, comic books and science fiction overlap. I must have read, maybe it was Twilight Zone magazine, which came out like a year before Zikri's book. They probably, that's where I probably heard, well, the minute I heard there was going to be a book about the Twilight Zone, I had just come out of art school, Rhode Island School Design in the late 70s, where video art, as we know it, was just beginning in the late 70s. And what I mean by video art, fine artists were taking pictures off the TV set, but they would reach around to the back of the TV in those days, the old TVs, and you could screw around with the horizontal and the vertical and create abstract images. And they would do that and take pictures. And they would wind up in galleries. And I would look at the and I would look at that in the late 70s while I was a Rhode Island School Design. And I would go, you know, to me it looked like a lot of visual masturbation. There wasn't anything profound there. But they were sort of funky, cool-looking images, but like big deal. Wasn't enough content. Mm-hmm. And I remember looking at them going, you know, and I love the Twilight Zone since I was a kid. And I said to myself, you know, if I were to do that, I would take pictures of Twilight Zone episodes and treat them like black and white art photography, which again, only in the late 70s did photography being accepted as an art form, specifically black and white photography, was just coming in. The Museum of Modern Art only created a photography department in 1975. That's the same year Bruce Springsteen put out the Born to Run album cover, which is one of the great black and white photographs of all time. But I, as a Twilight Zone fan, growing up with the show, mostly through reruns, my first visual image that I can recall, Zach, as a child, is the Twilight Zone eyeball in outer space from the 1963 opening. I was, you know, four and a half years old. And that's the age where your first visual memories begin. That's my first visual memory is the Twilight Zone eyeball. Gee, what a surprise. I ended up becoming, you know, an artist and I did a coffee table. Okay, so flash forward. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's 1981. I'm working in New York City in the public television art department. And I read that there's going to be a book about the Twilight Zone. So I had all these art book ideas for as an art director, graphic designer, what I would do with a book about the Twilight Zone. Because when I was at RISD studying graphic design, we learned a concept called the concrete book, which meant that as a graphic designer, every design decision creatively you make on that book should reflect the subject matter. So let's say you're doing a book about the history of railroads. Maybe the type at the bottom of the page, the page numbers would look like railroad tracks Mm. or something. Or you would print on sepia paper to get the look of, you know, the Wild West. 
These are all the decisions that laymen take for granted, but these are all the decisions a graph designer would make. So I'm thinking how to do a Twilight Zone concrete book. I immediately stayed up late at night. Twilight Zone back then was on at midnight on the local New York station. I set up my Nikon camera on a tripod in front of the TV, the broadcast Twilight Zone episode. And whenever I saw an image that just looked cool, I didn't think about it too much. If it looked cool, I snapped the shutter. And I took a million pictures of every Twilight Zone episode. And this is, now, this is back in the film days. So this is you, 1981. <laughs> so how many rolls and of film did you go through for this? Many, one? many rolls. But, you know, great photographers will say, out of a roll of 36, which was your standard Kodak roll, mm -hmm. if you got one good photograph out of 36, you were doing good. Mm -hmm. You know? So, yeah, most of uh, what I shot was no good, but there were the gems. Right. And sometimes it was an image that was only on screen for a split second. But I took it, and I just trusted my eye. And then I worked up a dummy book where I just took the opening Serling intro from the first season. There's a fifth dimension beyond that, which is known to man. And I created a little dummy book, sent it to Bantam with a fanboy cover letter saying, I'd love to be the graphic designer, art director of your forthcoming book by Mark Zickery, The Twilight Zone Companion. They sent the proposal right back with a cover letter, basically saying, thank you, Mr. Schumer, but we're going to design the book in-house, and thank you very much. And then when I realized they wanted an episode guide with the production photos, it was yeah. going to be a, a textbook more. I, my ideas were for a coffee table art book mm -hmm. about The Twilight Zone. Long story short, that set me on a nine-year journey to get my coffee table art book called Visions from the Twilight Zone. I schlepped that all around through the 80s, and finally I got it published by Chronicle Books in 1990. But even then, I was ahead of my time. This was before the internet, before the Twilight Zone Facebook fan groups, everything we have now. I was both, I thought I missed the boat because, you know, I came out, you know, in 1990 instead of, you know, Sir Zickery's book came out in 1982. But the point is, is my book was the second book about the Twilight Zone. But because Chronicle let it go out of print in the early 90s, you know, it's it, most Twilight Zone fans, especially more in your age group, mm -hmm. don't even know it exists. I, I will say, I, I did read that book when I was younger from the library, uh, uh, and I believe it was the second Twilight Zone book that I'd ever read because my because my dad had bought the Twilight Zone Companion. Uh, yeah, so we have that, everybody has and that. Then everybody has the Twilight Zone Companion. Uh, but but I do recall your book from the library. But yeah, I, I never really saw it anywhere else. Uh, right. outside of that. And that's, that's crazy to think that, that, that it was published in the early 90s and then went out of print after that. But Listen to me. It was ahead of its time. What can I tell you? Just like Serling, I'm a visionary ahead of my time. <laughs> but it sucks from a practical standpoint when you want to have a career and Twilight Zone fans don't even know my book existed. Mm -hmm. Well, there you go, guys. Now you know. Everyone oh. everyone, go to wherever you can, buy this book. Is it? I, it's it on Amazon. I mean, if it's out of print, that's the best way to find it. Out of print, but Amazon is now linked to all the secondhand book sites. Uh -huh. So if you just put in Visions from the Twilight Zone, Arlen Schumer, either one, you'll get there. Mm -hmm. And here's what I would advise. There was a limited edition hardcover mm. that has the Twilight Zone eyeball embossed in white 
on the black cloth book cover underneath the dust jacket that is worth the price of admission. But then there's a soft cover. <laughs> uh, I recently got my MFA degree, and part of my thesis was to do a, coffee, a couple of coffee table art books, and one of them is the revised version of Visions from the Twilight Zone. Um, my original one, I went with the look of the scan line, like getting the scan lines, literally the image right off the TV set, because that's how I felt the images were perceived by us. Mm-hmm. And then I listened to dialogue and narration from the show. And again, anything that sounded philosophical or surreal or thought-provoking, I would tape record those segments, and then I transcribed them. And then to use the old cut-up method by William Burroughs, which to people listening in, he would just take his you know, stream of consciousness prose, cut it up into sentences, with scissors on paper and just throw it in the air and whatever landed, he would put it back in order. That's called the cut up method. Basically I had all these great images from the show and then I had all these great dialogue and narration experts, excerpts. And it could be every, everything from, um, you know, um, um, gee, of course now I can't think of one, but you know, <laughs> let me, let me, let me pull a classic expert, you know, other than the narration, you know, actual dialogue, you know, only if a man lived forever could there be any point to living at all. Um, anyway, the point is, is I had all these great verbal aphorisms even. Um, and then I had all these great images. And then, you know, I also come out of a comic book background, which is words and images working together. The image shouldn't explain the words and the words should explain the image. But when you put them together, just like a great classic print ad, like in magazines, which used to exist, <laughs> if you covered up the headline, the image should not make sense. And if you cover up the image, the headline should not make sense on its own. But when you read them together, they create a new reality. So if a line of dialogue from one episode ended up going with an image from another episode, I put it together because in that way, I treated Twilight Zone like a single body of work, even though it was written by different people, not just Serling, obviously, directed by people. It was a body of work called the Twilight Zone. And I'd like to think that that's part of the greatness of the show is that it has that auteur-like quality of Serling being the overall um, um, setting the tone of the show because it was his show, but then all the writers and the directors and the actors, editors, all the creative people work towards that kind of singular vision. And that's part of, and that's true for Star Trek as well. Under Gene Roddenberry's, which was influenced by Twilight Zone, you know, he delivered the eulogy at Serling's funeral. And he said, Star Trek would have only been a glimmer in his eye if it hadn't been for Serling and the Twilight Zone. Yeah, that, that's fascinating to me because you you give these lectures and speeches and uh, on the subject matter, many subject matters, but especially the Twilight yeah. Zone and Rod Serling. And uh, at Serling Fest, you were given a lot of these uh, 
talks, which I found very fascinating because I'm like, well, I know a lot about the Twilight Zone, but then I watch you. I'm like, I don't know anything about the Twilight Zone. <laughs> after, after I listen you. to you, right? Uh, but you know, no, knowing that Roddenberry was at Sterling's funeral and gave a eulogy, I mean, that's fascinating stuff. And then you know, and that's a great segue there because part of uh, you know what we're going to talk about here is kind of the intersection between. Twilight Zone and Star Trek, which is something you go into a lot in your in your talks. And there was all if there was a Venn diagram, the middle part would be so big between the two shows, right? Yes. Well, because exactly, it's more than most people think. Put it this way: the obvious is always, oh, Shatner. Yeah. You know, the star of the Star Trek. He was in two classic Twilight Zones, not just you know run of the mill episodes, but two of what many consider two of the best. Yeah, both of those are on my top ten list for sure. So people start with the actors. But then, you know, you get down to then the scripts and the writers overlap. But the overall basic conception, taking science fiction seriously, before the Twilight Zone in the 1950s, science fiction in the pop culture, not, not the stories and the novels, but on the, the early medium of television with Captain Video and crap like that, showing the old Buck Rogers serials. And then in the movies, it was giant ants and all that bullshit. Serling, by having the creative clout from those 90-minute live teleplays that he won Emmys for, he was always a science fiction buff. And he read comic books, too. He was into pop culture. He wrote radio dramas. He He wanted to treat science fiction seriously like the way... It was being written by people like Ray Bradbury and stuff like that, which is the same stuff Gene Roddenberry was reading. A whole generation was reading that stuff. But Serling on television wanted to treat science fiction not as giant aliens, you know, and and not, you know, space opera. And nobody had ever done that on television. So by breaking ground and treating science fiction seriously, that's what opened the door for Roddenberry to basically do Star Trek as a more serious space opera show. Mm-hmm. Or as he said, it was like Wagon Train in Outer Space. Right. But the executives, they thought the only way you could do, you know, a spaceship astronaut show is to treat it, you know, no different than, you know, Captain Video or whatever was done in the 50s. So it was because of the ground Serling broke that Roddenberry was able to make a statement like, Star Trek would have only been a glimmer in my eye if it hadn't been for, however he specifically said it, for what Rod Serling did with the Twilight Zone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it, there's a great through line that you can see, like the evolution of just science fiction on television, especially in the pop culture. And and because I mean, it feels it's crazy because perhaps just because it's in black and white, but the Twilight Zone feels like, oh yeah, that was way before the Twilight Zone. No, it was actually like. I think I canceled, what, like two years before Star Trek premiered? Star Trek starts in the fall of 66. Twilight Zone leaves the air in the spring of 64. Yeah. But, for instance, th- th- this is concrete stuff. <laughs> George Clayton Johnson, mm. one of the great science fiction writers who wrote a handful of great Twilight Zone episodes, he wrote the first episode, not the pilot. Yeah, the man trap. The first, yeah. the first aired but, episode. Ma- okay, but the man trap is about the woman that changes shape. Mm-hmm. That comes out of his first Twilight Zone episode from the first season called The Four of Us Are Dying. Mm-hmm. Okay, then you get one of the great first season episodes where Captain Kirk splits in two Enemy and becomes yeah. the, the feminine, passive Captain Kirk and then the aggressive masculine. Who wrote that episode? Richard Matheson. 
Okay. Richard Matheson comes out of Twilight Zone. Mm-hmm. And one of Serling's greatest episodes was called Mirror Image, where you see duplicates of yourselves. So these, con- now remember, Serling didn't invent these concepts. These were parallel worlds, duplicates, robots, all that came out of the science fiction pulps and Mm -hmm. the stuff from the 50s by guys like Bradbury. But nobody had dramatized it for television. And that is why these Twilight Zone episodes are immortal. And that's why, look, in the last season of Twilight Zone, there's an episode called The Old Man in the Cave. Mm, yeah. They, the, the, okay, go ahead. And I have a- <laughs> No, but this we're ping-ponging. Yeah. The minute I mention Old Man in the Cave, you know that there's at least two Star Trek episodes? Yeah. Landro. And what's the other one? In other words, for the people listening in, Old Man in the Cave is basically a post-apocalyptic scenario where people think there's an old man in the cave telling them how to, you know. What food uh, to eat, you know, what's, where it's safe to go. Yeah, those sorts of exactly. things. Exactly. And, of course, the old man turns out to be a giant computer. It's a computer twist. It's yes. a computer. Okay. So. What the, two Star Trek episodes are basically riffs on that? Well, definitely Return of the Archons with Landru, which, by the way, they use the same prop. From exactly. that episode as Landru. It's just okay. And then the other episode, see, again, this is why I don't know my Star Trek like I know my Twilight Zone. What was the other episode where they're praying to the giant head? That's uh, the apple. That's Vol, and it's a uh, okay, alien Vol. computer. Yes. Same premise. Now, yeah. which one came first, Vol uh, or Landru? Landru came first. Landru was the first season, Vol was the second season. So. Okay. My point is both of, both of those episodes are Old Man in the Cave, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Uh, and also uh, John Anderson, yes. the, the actor who appeared in Twilight Zone several times. Yes. It's not original series, but he's Next Generation. He's in one of my favorite Next Generation episodes called The Survivors. Uh, it's okay. when the Enterprise comes across a planet where there's uh, only two survivors. Listen, I mean, so. We're only talking about... <laughs> Original generation. There it is. See, I'm not list, talking about next generation. I, we, were, we, we were talking at Starling Fest. I, I basically, I think I told you, I was like, Arlen, I don't think you like anything post 1975. That's and this is what true. I'm talking about. This that's is what not, I'm talking about. That, that's not true. <laughs> I like plenty of things. I gave um, Next Generation a chance mm-hmm. and I respect it. And I know why people love it. And I'm sure there are the great episodes. It, it didn't suck me in in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Everything felt a little cold. What, what I love about the original series, again, is that triad of Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, which, not that this is any great revelation, but of course they represent, you know, there's the right side of the brain, the left side, there's the mind, there's the heart, and there's the soul. All, all the metaphors of that triad where Kirk is the mediator between the logical, the Spock side of life, and McCoy, the emotional. And if you watch Metropolis, the original great mm-hmm. Metropolis, that's also about uniting the head, the heart, and the soul. You need the balance between the two. Life lived too emotionally or too factually gets you nowhere it's how and that's what kirk represents i guess i was looking for that dynamic in the new series which was 
unfair to the new series, of course. Mm -hmm. But for that reason, and that's really what I love about the original Star Trek. I'm not a science fiction guy, even though comics and science fiction overlap. Mm -hmm. I'm not well-read in the science fiction field. I've seen all the movies. Right, right. But I would never consider myself a science fiction buff or fan or whatever. But again, I respect it and I know about it. But, you know, I read too many comic books. So <laughs> I know my comics and I know my Twilight Zone. But, you know... Um, I forget what my point is. Well, the, the thing about the thing about Star Trek, right? I mean, it's it's similar. Oh yeah, the next yeah. generation. Yeah. Why I didn't get into it? Yes. Go on. Go on. Well, I just uh, remembered my tangent. Well, my, my 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 point, real quick, and we'll get back on your tangent is uh, the original series. It was described in some ways as an anthology show with standing sets. You know, so why the Twilight Zone was an anthology show all the way through, right? You mean that within? That's why he said wagon train in outer space. Mm -hmm. Within the framework of visiting different worlds, mm -hmm. you were able to tell different types of science fiction stories. Correct. So in that way, yes, it was anthology, not only with standing sets, but like any great TV show with continuing characters. Yeah, and that's and because you love those you want to see those characters in these extreme circumstances on a weekly basis, you know. Right. And that's that's the right. hook that kind of keeps you coming back. Twilight Zone hooks you on the concept. And then just, right. you know, but it's so because you on Star Trek, obviously you can't do a western one week and uh, a, a thriller the next. Although you can, but they almost they, did. They almost they did. Almost <laughs> did. <laughs> yeah, going to the cowboy Wild West episode. Yeah. Then they then they're in the 1920s, the gangster right. episode. Listen, within the framework, <laughs> that's what Roddenberry was trying to do: tell different types of stories within the science fiction umbrella using the Enterprise as a vehicle, pun intended, mm -hmm. to get them to different worlds, i.e. different stories. And so there was an anthology aspect. And yes, none of the characters over the three years developed. They don't go through character arcs. Right. They were pretty much the same because back then, nobody thought to do that with television characters. People thought television, they had to stay the same. Only in our modern golden age of television that we're in do characters actually go through arcs over the course of a series. And that's what characters do now because they treat television seriously. Twilight Zone didn't even have continuing characters except for Serling, mm -hmm. who was the, quote, star of the show. Right. But yes. And that's why Twilight Zone has been very difficult to imitate over the years because just relying on your story puts a tremendous amount of weight on the writer and the story to tell a great story. And guess what? It's hard to tell great stories. That's why having continuing characters gives you an armature, a hook right. that you can drape the story on when you don't have continuing characters. And that's why, listen, Twilight, I'm very harsh on the Twilight Zone. <laughs> 156 episodes. I think half of them are dogs, Zach. Dogs. And it doesn't mean that within the dogs, there might be a kernel of something good that's worth, it almost redeems the episode. But then you're left with 75 episodes. I think 50 of those are what I would call good to great television. Mm -hmm. And then you're left with 25 half hours. Those are the episodes I'm giving to the aliens when they beam down to Earth and say, we have room in our spaceship for a little bit of Earth television. <laughs> what are you gonna give them? Are you gonna give them The Sopranos? Are you gonna give them Seinfeld? 
Are you going to give him I Love Lucy? I'm giving him those 25 half hours as the best television Earth has produced. Now, my 25 is different from your 25 and different from the next guy's 25. You know, tomorrow night I'm going into New York City to see that Fathom movie event. Yes, yes. They're showing six episodes. Are you doing it down in Texas? Yes, yeah, that's the plan. Me and my girlfriend are going to go. Great. Now, you saw the lineup of the six episodes. Yeah. <laughs> okay, no surprises, right? But guess what? Out of those six episodes, I think four of them are not uh, – put it those two – those are not the six episodes I would choose. Right. Yeah. It's it, it's the same thing. It's like with Star Trek, right? It's like, what are the the best episodes, and then what are the ones most representative of Star Trek? Those right. are those are different lists. Absolutely. Right. Well, and the other thing is, is that amongst fans, as you know, <laughs> one of my least favorite episodes is somebody else's top ten. Always, yeah. And one of the episodes I think is a dog is somebody's favorite. You know, as an art historian, and as a critic. Part of a, a job of a critic and an historian is they develop consensuses, consensi, of <laughs> what in, in that given field is the top 10. You know, why do you think the AFI, the American Film Institute, has these polls? You know, everything on the internet is top 10 this and top 10 that. The point is, is that is what critics and historians do. Not everything is great. And just because a layman says, well, you know, I think the Mona Lisa is a piece of shit. doesn't make it a piece of shit. because art historians who study art and critics who know what they're talking about will tell you why that's a work of art and why something else is not. But obviously, what is art is a debate that's been going on as long as art's been made. But within Twilight Zone, I always like to try to create a consensus when I discuss the best episodes. Like, I put together a list of, of the episodes that I think define what the Twilight Zone is. Because when you ask somebody, what is the Twilight Zone, you'll get 10 different answers. But when I try to define what the Twilight Zone is, I think there are specific episodes that define that better than others. And that's why when I say, you know, these are the best episodes, it's because I think they define what the Twilight Zone is, the best of anything, should define what that category is. Yeah, a couple of things on that. First of all, have you seen Futurama? Of course. All right, so the their Star Trek episode where no fan has gone before. I love it when, uh, when someone asks Fry, Star Trek, what's yeah. that? He's like, you know, 1966, 79 episodes, about 30 good ones. <laughs> you know, it's, it's similar <laughs> similar to your analysis of the okay. Twilight Zone. I mean, absolutely. So Okay, but like I said, my top tw so so for instance, <laughs> the six that they pick. Okay, I the Beholder, yes. Yes. Um, but you see, time enough at last. I know why people love that. That's not one of my favorite. That's mm -hmm. not in my top six. Mm -hmm. Neither is Monsters of Do on Maple Street. No, I like the Again, shelter better. We talked about that on big favorite. <laughs> but I'm just saying, while I respect those episodes, those two episodes are in my. Remember, I said fifty that are good to great. Yeah, they're not. E they're not even in my top twenty-five. Mm -hmm. um, to serve man is on there. Okay, to serve man to me. A one trick pony. That, huh? Okay, I call that a punchline episode. Mm -hmm. Meaning, get it to serve man. It's a pun on. Okay, do you know that episode ranks number one on many fans' top ten list? Mm. 
I mean, that's Look, it doesn't surprise me, right? Okay. Now, in my lecture, I talk about there are two modern science fiction TV series called V. One was 1983, mm. and the other one was about 10 years ago. Yes, yes, yes. That's essentially to serve man. First, they come to Earth looking benevolent, and then they end up screwing us. They're lizard people. Right. But that was essentially what to serve man. But that's not even in my top 25. Right. Uh, okay, walking distance. Mm -hmm. They're showing that. Okay, that is not only the greatest time travel episode of the series, it's the greatest time travel story ever filmed. And it's that's it. And 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 a case can be made that it might be the single greatest Twilight episode, which by the way, happens to be running tonight on MeTV, which is my area retro station that shows the Twilight Zone in chronological order. That's the episode on tonight, Walking Distance. MeTV also shows Star Trek, everyone. So Yes, on Saturday nights <laughs> up where I am in the New York area. Now, okay, so Walking Distance and I, the Beholder, are in. I think The Invaders, it's probably in my top 25. But I'm telling you, I would only, out of those six, I would have chosen Walking Distance, I, the Beholder, and maybe The Invaders. Well, is, is The Invaders not a punchline episode as well to you? Yeah, but the way it was done with hardly any dialogue and what's-her-name's Agnes Moorhead's. Right. Like I said, it's right on the edge of my top 25. Okay. But I could pick off the top of my head so many what I think greater episodes. For me, Five Characters in Search of an Exit mm -hmm. is, is defining the Twilight Zone. Starring well, William Wyndham from the Doomsday Machine. Billed as Billy Wyndham in the Twilight Zone. When, by the time he did Star Trek, he was William Wyndham. Mm -hmm. um, that would have made it in for me. Uh, mirror image mm -hmm. about the duplicates in the bus station. That would have made it in. Inspired Jordan Peele's new movie, Us. Of yeah. course. The After Hours with Anne Francis as the mannequin. Mm -hmm. That's one of the greatest Twilight Zone episodes. Remade, just remade you, in the 80s with Dax, Terry Farrell. But we don't talk about that. So. <laughs> Um, and then, I mean, like I said, once we start talking about great episodes... Well, you got to put a Shatner one in there. See, but again, the Shatners, while they're both great episodes, I don't know if either of them are in my top 25. Mm. Maybe they are, maybe they aren't, but they're on the edge. I'm telling you, I like World of Difference, in which an actor, a, a, a businessman, oh, yeah. is in his office and the phone is dead, and he goes to tell his secretary and he hears somebody yell, cut! And his life becomes a movie set. That is, I love that. That's, that's my second favorite classic episode. classic Twilight Zone. Yeah, love it. What I'm saying is, that's what I mean. The idea that your life is actually a movie, which they made into the movie The Truman Show in 1998, directed by Peter Weir. That's a perfect example of what I mean by defining what the Twilight Zone is. When you go, wow, man, isn't life like a movie? When philosophers have been debating... Do we live in a malevolent universe or a benevolent universe? Do we have predestiny or do we have free will? These issues are all basically discussed in that 23-minute episode, World of Difference. Mm -hmm. That would have been in my top six. Absolutely. So that, that's where I differ with the more popular lineups of those other episodes. Well, well, this is great because uh, this all these, everything we've been talking about here, can kind of tie into what I want to ask you about sitting on the edge of forever, which is the Harlan yeah. Ellison episode with time travel. So Harlan, right. Harlan Ellison, right? Uh, he never wrote an episode of the original 
Twilight Zone, I guess. Well, right. But he did do some Outer Limits. So did, do you know, was he ever in the orbit of Rod Sewing to write an episode of the original Twilight Zone? Or You know, when did, when did Ellison come to the fore as a writer? Because when did Ellison come to the fore? Well, he was extremely young in the in the 60s. Right, that's what so. I'm saying. So I think I mean okay, he he did the uh outer limits, but what year was that episode of his with the um the one that was supposed to be like the terminator? Yeah, uh, was that the second season or the first season? That was honestly I'm not Mr. Outer Limits either. <laughs> okay. Well, the point is is I don't know what Ellison wrote that made his made his bones. Mm-hmm. But the point is, is he was probably just on the outside edge right. of making it into the Twilight Zone when it was originally he, on. He, I, you know, he did write I, some episodes I, for the '80s show, Arlen, but we don't talk yeah, about well, that. Well, that was, of course, way later. <laughs> but say in the '60s, right? You have to find out when Ellison came of age or came to renown, right? Well, I mean, was it re- repent Harlequin said the TikTok man? That's all I really know about. I, ha- I have no mouth, but I must scream. That kind of stuff, right? Yeah. Uh, well, so, the, well, City on the Edge Forever, right? I mean, people say it's the greatest episode of Star Trek and all that. No way yeah. is it the greatest episode. Well, uh, that's what I'm saying. It, it it's not the most representative of the okay. series. So, let me ask you as a Star Trek fan, absolutely. Why is that episode? Because it's always perplexed me. Yeah. Why is that episode? Ranked so highly. Well, I think it's one of the most emotionally powerful episodes. Because she dies at the end. Right, Is because that Kirk falls in love and he has to sacrifice her at the end. Oh, crying he makes river. He makes the right choice. But, you know, it has some great sci-fi concepts. I mean, you look at The Man in the High Castle, right, by Philip K. Dick, right? You can right. look at that as the alternate timeline where Edith Keeler didn't die and the right. Nazis did win World War II. So you can look at it. Right. These, these are some high concepts. You're talking about time travel, alternate timelines, you know. But again, again... Serling did it first in the Twilight Zone, but he got it out of the idea of time travel changing the future. That's an old science fiction trope. Mm-hmm. Again, you I'm not a buff on science fiction pre-Twilight Zone, but I'm sure those concepts were in those pulp stories right. and in the Bradbury type stuff. But walking distance tonight, the fact that when he's a kid, he falls off the carousel at the end, hurts his leg, and then when you go back to present time, he's got a limp now mm-hmm. as an older man. That's that concept mm-hmm. that, you know, events in the past can change the future. Right. So by the time Ellison did, okay, so I get it. And then, you know, well, it, whenever. It's, it's a great story. It's like a great story, you know, like and that, yes. but people, people do say people, people who are trying to have hot takes on Star Trek now, as you know, it's been around for 50 years. Everybody tries to have a hot take. They say it's better. It's it's almost more of a Twilight Zone or Outer Limits episode than a Star Trek episode. Okay. My feeling is, if you were to ask me what defines Star Trek, yes. and what do again, and I'm not an expert fan. I don't know every episode and all the trivia. I just know what I like. I'm a layman when it comes to Star Trek. But when I think of the episodes that would define the series, again, I think Matheson's episode where Kirk splits in two. Mm-hmm is because, face it, the show centered on Kirk. And, and, and exploring the human condition, which that episode does and so well. And because McCoy represented the feminine emotional side and Spock represented the masculine factual side, by Kirk having to weigh the two and make his Captain Lee decision, in that episode, by splitting in two, it's representative of the series. 
But I can understand why Sid and Andrew Forever is is uh, emotionally the oh. favorite because you know he falls in love. You get the death. Of, this is why Bond fans like that horrible uh, George Lazenby. <laughs> You know, because Diana Rigg dies in the end. And I'm like, are you kidding me? George Lazenby was so terrible. That final scene where she's dying in his arms or she's dead, it looked like an audition that he's, he's he's like a bad actor in an audition, you know, auditioning a death scene. He is horrible. He is the weakest link to an almost great movie, yes. But now with the greatness of Facebook, you've got discussion groups (laughs) about the Bond movies, and these Bond fans love Honor Majesty's Secret Service. Mm -hmm. They love it. And they love it because, similar to City on the Edge of Forever, the death scene, the hero falls in love. Fans love that shit. Not this man. Well, and also I think that it's because you Star Trek, right? A formulaic show. Right. Uh, that well, it breaks the formula. Honor Magic Secret Service breaks the Bond formula. So when something goes out of the norm, it grabs you right. and like, look at this is different. So that's another reason of I course. think it ranks high. And- but also listen, when you pull on the emotional heartstrings, right, and you've got the death of a character like that, especially what other episode does Kirk fall in love? Spock fell in love on that episode with Marietta Hartley. McCoy falls in love in one of the episodes. This was Kirk. Is there another episode where Kirk falls in uh, love? Kirk has many romances. He might. He That's might. Not what I'm talking about. He, he probably generally falls in love once a season. Maybe he falls in love. We'll say that on average. Okay. Let's just say <laughs> the only one people remember of Kirk falling in love is City on the Edge of Forever. Right. So I'm just telling you, it gets a lot of points. Mm-hmm. Because of the emotions, which are hard to deny. Listen, in comic books, Spider-Man fans love the death of Gwen Stacy. Yes, yes. To them, if you were old enough to, oh, that was their, like, uh, when Kennedy got assassinated moment. Yeah. In comic books. Okay? Why? The death of a major character that Spider-Man was in love with. So, yeah, I mean, it goes back to Romeo and Juliet, or as far back as you want to go, in terms of, the great story myths. Falling in love and one of the spouses dying is one of the great, I would say, stories of all time, though. Right. I don't know. I'm just saying it's, it's, it's one of the great tropes. And hell, it was worth, and it was done well. And, you know, it's the classic time travel story where if you know, the butterfly effect, if you change, you know, blah, 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 blah. I get it. It's just nowhere near what I would consider my favorite. Yeah. I like them when they're out in space on the oh. spaceship. I don't want them down on earth in hobo costumes <laughs> you know, or whatever they were dressed That's up. an excellent point because, I mean, the, sitting, on the, sitting on the Edge of Forever is in my top 10 because it's a great episode. But my favorite episode is Where No Man Has Gone Before, the, the second pilot, the one where they go to the edge of the galaxy and Gary Lockwood uh, gets the powers and he's Kirk's best friend. Uh, yes. But they, but then it comes down. He has to kill him because he's gonna, you know, uh, do horrible things. And but it, right. it, it explores the human condition, and it explores like you know, your space. It, it, to me, it checks all the boxes of Star Trek. It's like space adventure. Check. You're going. You're literally going to the edge of the. By galaxy, the way, right? Lockwood had to have gotten the 2001 gig because of that episode. Right. <laughs> it's like the same character. <laughs> well, I'm just saying, <laughs> didn't he get that? Because I remember at the time of 2001. 
I was like, who is Gary Lockwood? And then, oh, yeah, he was on that Star Trek episode. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, you know? I would assume so. I mean, that, that would be a big part of his reel, I assume. Uh, yeah. But you get the space adventure. You get great guest stars, Gary Lockwood and Sally Kellerman, you know, right. uh, have strong right. performances. Early Sally Kellerman, uh, yes. Spock is like like defined as, as the logical guy right there. He has right. a different worldview, and that's what people, a lot of modern interpretations of Spock totally forget why he was a popular, interesting character to begin with, because he was different. And, okay. you know, him and Kirk, their friendship is kind of forged here through this, and Kirk losing his best friend, having to kill him. So, anyway. You're telling me that was the second pilot. That's the second pilot after the case. Uh, the cage when is the one. When does he air where no man has gone before? So, uh, that? so that's that's what's complicated about it, right? It was aired third after the man trap and Charlie X, right. and then and then comes where no and man. And why? Has gone what was that decision? Who Roddenberry made that decision? So at, why? NBC, I think, ultimately ma made the final decisions on these because they didn't want to show that first because it was so different than the show itself because ah. uh, it was filmed and produced in 1965 and then they're like, okay, now you can have your show. You go to series. By the time we get to 1966, they have new cast members. They have new uniforms, a kind of bit of a new right. aesthetic on the show. So I, I understand the logic because it's like, I'm going to introduce you to a new show. Uh, so we want to introduce you to the show you're going to see. Who but wrote Where No Man Has Gone Before? Uh, Samuel A. Peoples. What did, he, did he write other Star Trek episodes? Well, he wrote he wrote the first episode of the animated series, <laughs> Beyond the Farthest no. Star. But no other great, no other great uh, Star Trek episodes. No, no other great Star Trek episodes. Uh, so, but then you know, Roddenberry had a hand in this, you know, as he did with all early Star Trek, much like Rod Sterling. Roddenberry, like, everything went through the Roddenberry filter. You know, it's like right. he was of rewriting course. like of everything. Course. So his, he knew the characters, his voice. You know, there's certain Roddenberryisms, just same way there were Sterlingisms. Uh, That's a no-brainer. But yeah, they went with the man trap because it was like, well, it's like a monster of the week story. You guys understand that it's sci-fi, and that kind of undercut what they were trying. Well, and to again, do. it was done on the Twilight Zone. Yeah. So it was one of my favorite Star Trek episodes that comes to mind as my favorite is the spores. Yes, uh, this side of paradise, where Spock okay. falls in love. Yeah, that will always be immortal for the one classic line after Spock has turned and he's hanging out with his girlfriend, yeah. who I think was Jill Ireland. Correct, or, correct. Right, becomes Charles Bronson's wife. I think. Yes. Married yes. Right. The best part is he's already turned. He's one of them. And Kirk calls him on his tricorder, you know, Spock, get up here or something. And Nimoy goes, yes, Captain, what is it now? <laughs> like just that whole attitude where Spock has mellowed out, mm -hmm. you know, he's gotten high. Well, it's a hippie commune. That's basically what well, the analogy what is, right? <laughs> I love that episode. Right. It's just so great to just have Spock and, and, doesn't that episode end with a classic line? Yes, this is the great ending where Spock goes, so what was it like, you know, to be part of, you know. Yeah, they asked Spock this, right. And Spock at the end goes, and this is how the episode ends. And he goes, for one brief moment. I was happy. Yeah, for the first time in my life, I was truly happy. Was happy. You're like, oh, I, my God. I, I don't even think he says truly happy. <laughs> I think he just says I was happy. Yeah. I might be wrong, but having it end on that line, that is a great Star Trek episode. Mm -hmm. 
That's better than Edge of Forever. <laughs> See, I knew you would have some hot takes, Arlen. But but you know, also all I got are all I got are hot takes, baby. Uh, There's nothing lukewarm or cold <laughs> in the Arlen Schumer shop. It's all hot takes. Well, also in that episode, Kirk and Spock have to fight, right? And that's like a that becomes a, a trope of Star Trek. But that's always great because one of my favorite of episodes course. is a mock time. Where of Spock course. has to, you know, go back home. Is the urge to mate on far yeah, exactly, and th- that's the second season premiere. So what a strong way to start your season. Yeah, and yeah. I mean that's great because it because ultimately you're you're right. The original series, all the highbrow science fiction stuff aside, it's about Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. Those those three guys. Well, because in the end, when genre material transcends a genre and becomes just a great piece of art. You know, I don't like Westerns, but yet I think Shane is the greatest Western of all time. And the reason being, not The Searchers, not High Noon, I think Shane is, because I think Shane transcends the genre Mm -hmm. and just is a great movie. And the best Star Trek episodes, the best Twilight episodes, the best of any genre, you know, the best Martin Scorsese crime movie. (laughs) When a genre is so great, it transcends its genre and just becomes a great film. So people talk about The Godfather as a great movie, not a great mob movie. Yeah. Or a cops, they used to be called cops and robbers films. <laughs> but just a great movie. 2001 is a great movie, not just a great yeah. scientific when, movie. When you have to remove, when you, when you can remove the qualifier, right? That's my point. So the Star Trek episodes that I love like where he splits in two or the, uh, the spores. spores episode. Those to me are really, like you said, the human condition, which is what all art at its best is supposed to be about. Mm-hmm. It's always about reflecting the human condition. Well, do, do you have any hot takes then on the Star Trek movies? Because I think the most Roddenberry of the Star Trek movies is the first movie. Okay. In the same way as a Batman fan, I hate all the live-action Batman, starting with the '40s serials. I hated the '60s TV show. I hate the way Batman looks, the costume. I hate the open eye holes. Batman's supposed to have white one-way lenses. Mm-hmm. That's why when Batman in the comics is in the darkness, you can see those white eyes. And then Tim Burton adds the black mascara, which made it even more stupid looking especially when he rips the mask off and it's gone magically yeah you like that <laughs> women around the world would love instant mascara remover like that very good but anyway to me you know i don't care about the rest of the film if batman the center of the film looks ridiculous mm-hmm. and it's not only because i'm an artist and i'm very visual these characters are visual icons if you don't understand what makes them visual icons, the Marvel movies have done a slightly better version of this. Iron Man looks like Iron Man. Captain America looks like Captain America, you know? But the Batman looks nothing like the Batman of the comics, in my opinion. And not having the, the one-way lens white eyes, forget it. So the reason why I bring this up is when I think of what made Star Trek, the TV show, great, those uniforms, those brightly colored sets. To me, if you're going to make a movie out of Star Trek, you just find a way of paying homage to that visual sense and doing it theatrically on a film. 
all of the uniforms in the movies with Kirk and company were horrible. <laughs> Each uniform was worth it. What was, was it the first movie that looked like they were, uh, you know, lobster bibs on their chest? The white panel that that's, hangs open. Yeah, that's two through six. Yeah, that's my okay. uh, that's my favorite. Star, that's my favorite Star Trek uniform. <laughs> so, here's my point. I don't care about the stories. I don't care about Shatner's bad toupees throughout the thing. To me, none of the movies captured the look of the series. Mm-hmm. The interiors, and again, I'm probably the only one. That cares about this. No, you're, you're, you're a visual guy. You know, I mean, you're a visual storyteller. It, make, it makes sense that you gravitate towards these. You want a great story and all that. But to me, to not have those great uniforms that he wore on the show, those velour sweaters and those pants and all that, to not have that, it, it, to me, is part of its identity. Hmm. But again, I know I'm in the minority, just like when I'm around a bunch of Batman fans. Nobody cares about the white eyes. Mm-hmm. I seem to be the only one. But by the way, the latest rumor about the new movie with Robert Pattinson mm-hmm. is that he's going to have a blue cowl, a gray suit, and white eyes. I didn't know the white eyes. I was thinking, I was, I heard those rumors as well, and I was like, hmm, you know, the blue and gray we'll is something we've never gotten. So. Put it this way: pun intended. I'll believe him when I see him. <laughs> You know? I wonder if they'll do them the way they, if they indeed go that route, if they do it the way they do Spider-Man's eyes now, where they they're white but they still move. So listen, any way you do it, you got to do it. Mm-hmm. That's what Batman looks like. He's yeah. got white. Eye. You know, not all superheroes have white one-way lenses. Yeah. Captain America has open eye holes. The Flash in the comics has open eye holes, but certain comic characters have the white one-way lenses. Mm-hmm. Green Lantern. Has he doesn't have open eye holes with green mascara like in the last movie? He's got white one way lenses. So, you know, what can I tell you? This to me is part of the iconography. You know, Hawkeye, the archer from Marvel Comics. Mm-hmm. Do you know his costume in the comics is this wild purple, uh, medieval armored? kind of thing right if they if they made that in live action it would be the funkiest coolest costume pardon my french what does hawkeye look like in the marvel movies just some guy renner running around a black in a black turtleneck (laughs) i'm sitting there going where the hell is that medieval purple hawkeye you see to me again this is part of who these characters are Mm -hmm. they're not real people that change their outfits every adventure they have a uniform they've got a look and if you don't you know the spider-man movies have been successful largely they look like the spider-man character Mm -hmm. the costume looks like the comic character he moves he swings with the webbing like the comic character in whether the Tobey Maguire version or the Andrew, what's his name, or the latest ones, the costume basically resembles the Steve Ditko original. You can't say that for Batman. Mm-hmm. But you, you can know? for and Superman, Christopher Reeve, right? Of course. And Off only, the page. Only, only the first movie. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, yes, yeah, it, it does and stand on a. Maybe, maybe the second one because Donner had a hand. Yeah, the, the, the first one does stand alone. But so, so I, and I know you feel this way about the Twilight Zone. It's like you know what, we sh- just leave it well enough alone. It stands on its own. Do you, it sounds like you kind of feel the same way about Star Trek. That you, you know, leave it where it was in the '60s and don't necessarily listen. Other than watching a handful of Next Generation episodes, I haven't watched any of the new Star Trek mm-hmm. iterations, so I can't really talk about them. Mm-hmm. But the Twilight Zones, I gave every remake a chance, including the present one by Jordan Peele. They've all sucked. And getting back to the visual, they all fail to shoot in black and white. Mm-hmm. Now, the Twilight Zone itself was a black and white concept, the middle ground between light and shadow. That is a black and white concept. The stories are black and white stories, meaning reality and unreality. That's a black and white concept. And, you know, it's funny. There was pressure on Serling in the early 60s when color was just coming in. CBS wanted to use the Twilight Zone as its first color experiment. And they were putting pressure they didn't want to take a highly rated show and be doing color because not enough people had color sets. Twilight Zone always had low ratings. So supposedly there was pressure on Serling early on to shoot the Twilight Zone in color. Well, when George Clemens, the director of photography, who won an Emmy for, for his work on the Twilight Zone, and I interviewed him when he was still alive for my book, And he told me that when they came to him and said, we're thinking of Serling and Twilight Zone color, he objected vehemently and he went to Serling and he said, we can't give you the Twilight Zone feeling in black and white, in color, like we could and can in black and white. Now, Clemens was an old Hollywood craftsman, not an artiste. He didn't know from surrealism but he was a great Hollywood photographer and a great craftsman. For him to make a statement like that is something only an artist would be able to make by saying the Twilight Zone feeling, this is what we're talking about. The fact that shooting it in black and white is more than just the fact that every TV show was shot in black and white. It's that Clemens instinctively knew they were shooting for more than just the fact that every show was in black and white, they were shooting a black and white concept. So that's what he called the Twilight Zone feeling. However you define that, the Twilight Zone feeling. But for an old Hollywood craftsman to say that shows you the level of artistic savvy that the directors and, and the writers brought to the Twilight Zone, which makes them these beautiful, timeless, or ageless shows. And yet, every single remake has been shot in color, starting with the horrible Spielberg movie, (laughs) the 85 remake, the 1998 remake, the 2000, whatever it was, all the reiterations, including the new one by Jordan Peele, they're all shot in color. So right away, they've lost me, but I've given them a chance. And, and I will it, I will say just because yeah. they released them in black and white does not mean the same thing. You just turning the color down Thank does you. not replicate filming something specifically in black and white. Lighting, contrast, shadow. You can tell the yeah. difference between yeah. when something is shot purposefully in black and white 
versus just, listen, you can go on your computer, take a color image <laughs> and turn it into black and white, you know, in the settings, you can change the mode. That'll show you that not every color image translates when you just turn it into black and white. You've got to shoot for black and white and great photographers mm -hmm. and cinematographers know that shooting for black and white is a whole different ball game creatively and artistically and technically than shooting for color, did, period. Did you ever see Star Trek in black and white, like in old TVs back in the day? No. Okay, I, did, I, I obviously never I have, mean, so. <laughs> I, I grew up watching it in black and white because all we had were black and white TV. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't get a color TV until Star Trek went off the air. Mm -hmm. But yet, ironically, in my mind's eye, maybe just from seeing it in reruns all these years, I don't have a childhood memory of seeing it in black and white. Mm. When I think back to my childhood, because I think once, you know, back in the day when only a few people had color TV, like I remember going over either a relative's house or a friend's house and they had a big color TV and Star Trek was on. And maybe just that memory of the shock of seeing Star Trek in that beautiful, bright color lodged itself in my childhood memory. And now when I think back to my childhood with Star Trek, I see it in color, even though I watched most of those episodes on a, on a black and white, you know, zenith television. Yeah, it's it's funny how it's become a, not a trend, but it, I, I've seen it happen more in recent days, like, Mad Max, Fury Road, Logan, like they release like black and white versions. And I just, I don't understand the point of it these days. Cause if you don't misguided, yeah. misguided thinking, yeah. you know, cloudy, fuzzy, you're not Schindler's list people. Okay. Like that was, that was artistically done. <laughs> Thank you. Once again, Spielberg, this is why I was pissed off that Spielberg of all people <laughs> think did about not, that. but you see, you got to remember the big wigs in Hollywood, the bean counters, the accountants, they're all saying, oh, you can't shoot in black and white. The young people today, they don't know black and white. They're rejected. Meanwhile, great videos for songs are still shot in black and white. Every now and then you see a great commercial shot in black and white. Every now and then there's a movie in black and white. Didn't that movie The Artist a couple of years ago win the Academy Award? Right. Speaking of Robert Pattinson, right? His new film, as of this recording, The Lighthouse, that's in black and white as well. Is it? I didn't know that. My point is, this idea that you can't do black and white for television because the young people... Can you imagine being told something is great, but it's in black and white? You mean you're not going to watch it? Even though you've been told it's great, you're not going to watch it because it's in black and white? And yet... That is why none of these things are shot in black and white. It's funny. I, I don't know if I told you this at Sterling Fest, but uh, one of our friends had a big New Year's party and his parents and stuff. But we, a lot of us would turn on the sci-fi channel to watch the, the Twilight Zone marathon, right? And then, you know, random people would be in this party, maybe friends of parents, whatever. Uh, one, one story being uh, his dad came in and he, or his dad came in with one of his friends and we we're watching Twilight Zone. And the guy's like, Oh, I control the vertical. I control the horizontal. I was like, sir, ah. sir, that's the outer limits. But thank you for playing. <laughs> but, so, right. but the other one was, I don't know who this guy was. Some like generic college, like generic dude, like uh, whatever dude. Right. And like, so what are you guys watching? We're like, and he, and he sees this at Twilight Zone. He's like, 
if it's black and white, we don't watch it. And we all just we all just kind of look at him, and then he just kind of wanders off. We're like, bro, you're th- you came to the wrong house. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we like the Twilight exactly. Zone, and it was great. You know, we're all band nerds and stuff, so we kind of have similar sensibilities. So, no, we really enjoyed having the Twilight Zone. On. A few episodes, we'd actually like sit down and watch, and then just to have it on in the background as well. Just a course, nice, it's good course. comfort food. And actually, and now I'm kind of annoyed that the sci-fi channel doesn't do it all the time like did i watch it every july 4th and every new year's well no but it's, it was good to know I it was know. there right of course <laughs> listen we've all got these shows on dvd we can take them out and watch them whenever we want but when it's broadcast and it's being done for you there's still something fun about that right you know it's, it's like, that I, collective experience you know thousands right, of other, other people, people are watching, watching. <laughs> Yeah, because like I said, you know, I like watching Twilight Zone on reruns, even though they're edited and, you know, I could pull out any episode at any time and watch it, but I'll only do that if I'm showing the episode to somebody, like a guest or whatever. Mm -hmm. But otherwise, I just wait till they come on TV and I watch them. Same thing with Star Trek. I've got all the original episodes on DVD. Mm -hmm. I wait till they come on every Saturday night and I'm like, oh, this episode. Yeah, I remember this one. You know, Arlen, just to kind of uh, wrap us up here, if there was one episode of the... Wrap this up! I feel like we just got started! (laughs) Well, this isn't one of your three-hour lectures, you know? What can I tell you? What can I tell you? But, you know, I, I would say if there was one episode, I thought about this many times, if there was one episode of The Twilight Zone, I think would be, like, you could just supplant it into Star Trek. I would probably say Elegy, you know, because you have three astronauts that land on a planet... It looks kind of like Earth. It's kind of mysterious. There's people that are mannequins. Like, I could see that as a Star Trek episode, like Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. Obviously, you would have to change the ending <laughs> where they don't turn into mannequins and die. But, you know, right. if they now, landed there in a shuttlecraft or something, I could see that playing out. So, I don't know. Yes. Yeah. Well, listen. Again, any one of the of the, um, what, the the little people where they find the miniature mm. people, that could have been a Star in, Trek Any episode. astronaut episode. Well, basically, you know, face it. Um, Serling stories that took place, uh, you know, in outer space or on other planets were the models for Star Trek. They were they were astronauts on planets mm-hmm. having adventures, and they were Twilight Zone episodes, but they were about the human condition. Yeah. So yeah, I think that's a great way to wrap up this talk. Is that you know, and and the threads between Star Trek and Twilight Zone are firm and convincing and they're really beyond argument i mean they're right there mm-hmm. and right out of gene roddenberry's own mouth so but yeah. yeah i would say when you talk about the 1960s the great tv shows you know to me it's the flintstones twilight zone batman oh star trek batman huh so batman fan after well, all <laughs> well i have a love-hate relationship with that too but uh <laughs> I included because it was so different than anything that had ever come before. And when it came on, it was a shock, even though it went downhill right, right away. Well, you know, for me, not to go on too big of a tangent, but for me, you know, as a, as a, as a kid watching it, I was like, oh, this, this is, man, I loved it, you know, little kid. And then you get older, you're like, what is this? And you get a little older and you kind of appreciate it for its self-awareness, just how absurd it is. You know, like they knew they were a comedy, at least. But here's, but see, here's the problem. <laughs> I was a fan of Batman and the comics before the TV show. Yeah. And there was one version of the comic book Batman that was not ridiculous and goofy and stupid. He was more like Sean Connery Bond. Hmm. The Sean Connery Bond might have a few comedic quips, but those are serious spy movies. 
-hmm. From Rush With Love is practically a Hitchcock film. If they had treated Bond as campily and goofily as they treated Batman, fans of the Bond novels would have gone a but yet it was okay to treat Batman like a goofball. Mm -hmm. Batman was never supposed to be that. But that's because William Dozier, the producer, thought comics were junk and that the only way to do Batman was to camp it up. Mm -hmm. So people accept that about Batman. But if you were a Batman fan, we didn't want our hero treated like a joke. We wanted him to be as serious as Connery's Bond. And he wasn't. But do I appreciate it because artistically, visually, it came out of the blue? Like, it really is the first self-conscious pop culture product yeah, the, that was the term, aware of itself. The term meta, right? I mean, that's... Right. Everything was different after the Batman TV show. <laughs> the night of January 12th, 1966, which literally is the halfway mark of a decade... Mm separates what came before with what came after. Yeah. Nothing, nothing was the same after the Batman TV show because it introduced irony. The camp aspect was a self-aware aspect. And once you became self-aware, it took out the innocence from everything before. Mm. Bond became eventually irrelevant once you became self-aware of the Bond machinations. Yeah. Yeah. The early Connery Bond movies are not self-aware. They're genre movies, and they're done beautifully. What, what, do you but, think, what do you think of the Timothy Dalton movies? Great actor, but right actor at the wrong time. There you go. I, I agree. He, I agree. Well, put it this way. <laughs> he was the closest visually to Connery. Mm -hmm. I liked Dalton the most. I've disliked all the live-action uh, James Bonds since Connery, mm, okay. except for Dalton. And, you know, I've watched the movies recently that he was in. They're not bad, but they're not great. Yeah. So he, he was a great Bond. I just, you know, like I said, the right man at the wrong time. There you go. I never liked Craig. <laughs> uh, he looks like a pug, you know. He looks like he's – when he's in a tux, he looks like he's crashing the party. Well, you you'll know? be happy to know I think he, this is going to be his last one. Yeah, up. but I wish he wasn't in this one. They were talking about Henry Cavill's oh, Bond. Henry Cavill would have been amazing because if you did you see the Man from Uncle the film? Of course, he was. I've never seen him so charismatic and amazing. He'd be amazing. Listen, he, he's English. He's got the dark look. He's built enough. Yeah, I'm pissed off that Craig came back. <laughs> well, they dangled so much money in front of him, he couldn't right. say no. Right. But I really wish I was. I was so tired and done with Craig. I, well, he's I, I, he seems to be tired enough with it, too. So. <laughs> yeah, but meanwhile, now we've got to wait another three years for Cavill, and he yeah. might age himself out of the bond. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. But I think I think Cavill should have been the guy uh, instead of, you know, he was an okay Superman, but I think he would have been a great bond, and we'll yeah. see what happens. I think Fassbender about 10 years ago mm. again instead of craig x-men first class time yeah definitely yeah because that's a like, X -Men first class he looked a little like connery the, the first like third of that film where he's going on his little nazi hunting journey yes. it's very james bond so. i'm watching that going who is this guy and why isn't he james bond <laughs> see and then, yeah and that's crazy Arlie. like we're sitting here it's 2019 and we're talking yeah. about star trek the twilight zone james bond 
Batman. These are all things from the 50s and 60s, you know, and it just shows like how they... so nothing's from the 50s. <laughs> Twilight, Twilight Zone. Zone technically started in 59. Right, oh, fair enough. Fire, fair it's enough. Okay. Listen. Well, I'm just I'm saying the, the, the timeless the nature stuff of this stuff. Was cre- well, because the stuff that was created back then mm-hmm. has stood the test of time. That's the definition of art. Mm-hmm. That is why people are still discussing Picasso and Warhol and Michelangelo and everybody else. Great art is timeless. And, you know, that's why we'll be talking about Norman Rockwell and Frank Frazetta and all this great shit that came out of the 60s because it was a very fertile period for the creative arts. Yes, politically it was all over the place and there were the assassinations. There was the dark side of the 60s. -hmm. But the bright side of the 60s was the explosion of of art and popular culture. And out of that came Twilight Zone, Star Trek, Batman, The Prisoner, Mm. the Flintstones. The best (laughs) thing about 60s television came out during that fertile time, which we're still living with the repercussions of. Well, okay, last question then. Yes. Uh, Have you watched the new Star Trek films, the J.J. Abrams movies? Yeah, I liked them better than the other films. Well, I, because... I, I thought you might like it because of the just the visual flair and style to them. Perhaps. Of course, okay. visually, he was better than any of the previous Star Trek. Mm-hmm. I, I wish Abrams again, right man at the wrong time. I wish he had been around to direct Kirk and McCoy and that group. You know, mm, in the eighties. Okay, in the eighties. But okay, coulda, woulda, shoulda. But yeah, I liked it because I thought Chris Pine. You know, the past thing. They looked like a young Kirk. I was more into those than the um, any of the uh, regular Star Trek films. There you go. Well, there's, there's progress there. Okay, so <laughs> I, th- I thought listen, I thought you might. All, thought you listen, might. just like I'm willing to give this Pattinson Batman a chance mm-hmm. because if he's got white eyes, baby, I'm there. <laughs> you know, it's all about what Batman looks like. If he yeah. looks cool, then I'll deal with the rest of the movie. Right. Well, I mean, we we didn't talk about Star Trek that much at Sterling Fest, but yeah, for just so you know where I stand, like I I loved Star Trek 09. I thought Into Darkness was a, a poor story yeah. choice, and that kind of sunk things. While also they waited too long, they lost all their momentum, and then finally, I actually really liked Beyond. I thought Justin yeah. Lin really surprised me. And- you know, the the irony is that I wish Abrams had done a new Star Trek TV show with that crew mm. versus these big bloated movies Absolutely. that always have to top themselves. I think Abrams, who came out of television, it's like Spielberg did, I think working with that crew and those ideas would have been better for episodic television than these big movies. I think there's too much pressure from Hollywood to like, you got to keep with these, with these franchises. Mm-hmm. You got to like keep popping. That's what killed the Bond movies. Mm-hmm. Popping the last one. Right. Whereas television, you could grow more slowly and more gradually. You don't have to, and you could tell a quieter story. Right. You have the end of the universe, every movie, right? which is what I hate about the big budget superhero movies. Yeah. They all have to have the big end of the universe. Some of the greatest superhero or take Batman stories are quiet little dramas. Small scale, yeah. Small scale. But high They're stakes. Not make a, a small scale Batman movie. Right. You know, already 
they're going to have all the villains yeah. in it, which yeah. fills the movie. Well, they all got to have screen time, which takes away from the main. I want to see a bat. I'd rather have Martin Scorsese do a Batman movie, mm. a crime drama set in gritty New York City, film it in black and white. Mm. That's the Batman I would like to see. Mm-hmm. Well, that yeah. ain't happening. A Star Trek movie should not cost $180 million like Beyond did. I mean, like well, that's unacceptable. That's what I'm saying. So. Had they put that money into a TV series instead, yeah. Yeah. would have had, would have had more of an homage to the original Star Trek. Absolutely. Well, Arlen, it has been a lot of fun geeking out with you again, buddy. I hope it was as good for you as it was for me. Absolutely. Where where can people find you out there online? My website, uh, arlenschumer.com, A-R-L-E-N-S-C-H-U-M-E-R. I'm on Facebook as Arlen Schumer. Twitter is Arlen Schumer. Instagram is Arlen Schumer. But my website has links to everything, places to buy my posters, my book about comic history. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. Yeah, great, man. Well, you know, you and I connect on a lot of these levels with obviously Twilight Zone, but sci- science fiction as superheroes, Star Trek, all the good stuff. Pop so. culture, Zach. I'm <laughs> telling you, man, I would love to co-host the podcast with you anytime <laughs> you want me on. I'm, I'll always be available for you. All right. Well, thanks a lot, Arlen. It, it was, it was, okay. so, it, it was so great to meet you in person up at Sterling Fest last or this year, last month. Hopefully, we can right do it back again. At you. Yeah, I know, I know. Anything bringing you up to New York in the foreseeable future? Uh, not in the foreseeable future, but I, I know if I'm in the Northeast, I know who to call. So, <laughs> listen, figure out a way to get me down to Houston to lecture. I'll I'll, I'll, I'll start somebody's... knocking on doors, man. I don't... <laughs> well, listen, you got all the universities there. You got the Houston Art Museum. Figure out a way to get me down there so somebody pays my way so we can hang out. There you go. Well, there that that is reason enough for me to get on the phone with people right there. So. Talking about visions from the Twilight Zone and its intersection with Star Trek aren't the only things going on on Trek FM this week. Here's a quick look at what else you might have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.FM, Standard Orbit. I bought it I, I, when it first came out. I played it for like two or three days and I went, what is going on? Am I am I missing something? Is is just I'm not a good player, so... And then I checked on the reviews online and everyone agreed that it was not a good game. And we were all correct. Literary Treks. But that's why I bring this back around, why it was so cool, the Klingon battle cruisers, to distinguish them not being the smooth-sided, cheapy little things from the series. Gene gives them this, you know, never is this uttered on screen, but every little tech nerd <laughs> knows what a Katinga, you know, Klingon battle cruiser is. And it's only because... He came up with that gene, came up with that word and gave it to them in the novel. It's not in the movie. You know, nobody mm-hmm. says, Captain, we were right. picking up uh, three Klingon Takinga heavy battle cruisers on the, you know, Epsilon 9. Earl Grey. Come know. on. Like, when you know. go on a date, no. you're going out to dinner and you're, that's like the standard date number one, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, maybe things maybe are different in the 24th maybe. century. Maybe. <laughs> But okay, all right. I mean, I, I, I but okay. So, 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 I mean, you could be assuming this is the first time they shared breakfast together. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. That's <laughs> a wild assumption. Maybe they're that, that, right. And introducing our newest show, The Line, a Star Trek Picard podcast. Mike, I wanted to make a comment about something that you said about uh, being mostly the middle for a lot of these comic book franchises. It actually makes me think Star Trek in a way is something that keeps going and going 764 installments now without a specific 
end necessarily. Maybe it'll come what, someday. What but these are the voyages was a was a love letter <laughs> to the fans. What are you talking about, Justin? You know what I mean. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out all these shows and find out what we're talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, you can get the show on iTunes or the Apple Podcast app. Be sure to hit the subscribe button. That helps us out greatly and makes it easier for other listeners to find the show. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and of course, you can stream and download the MB3 file from our website and grab the RSS link as well. If you would like to get in touch with us here at Trek FM, you can always find us on trekfm slash contact and look at the sidebar on the show page, or you can go to speakpipe.com slash trekfm and please leave us a voice message. You can also contact us through Twitter at trekfm, Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm, and the Babel Conference. Type the Babel Conference, that's B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook or go to our website at trekfm.com and click discussion on the menu bar. Another way you can help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week is to become a patron of the network on Patreon. If you visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm, you'll find our current goals, our different milestone contribution levels, along with all the great perks we have for you. These perks include early access to content, exclusive content, producer credit, seats on our content development team, and more. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. Speaking of Patreon, thank you as always to our associate producers for Standard Orbit. They are Norman C. Lau, Nick Anastasio, Tim Robertson, Richard Marquez, Corey Elrod, Dan Rhodes, and Mike Richards. Your contributions, your help, your support, they mean the world to us, and we appreciate you being associate producers on Standard Orbit. As for me... You can find me on Twitter at MoronZach, that's M-O-O-R-E-O-N-Z-A-C-H. I'm also the host of my own podcast, Always Hold On To Smallville, where we talk about each and every episode of that Young Superman show. You can find us on Twitter at AlwaysMallville, with one S. I'm also the co-host of Franchise Fatigue, a podcast where we look at sequels, remakes, movie franchises, and when a franchise gets fatigued. You can find us on Twitter at UFP Earth, part of the United Federation of Podcasts. So thanks everyone for listening, and join us again next time here on Trek FM for another episode of Standard Orbit. <laughs>